Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome back to the Book of Mormon podcast. I'm Brad Constantine, and this discussion is going to be regarding 2 Nephi chapter 31. So I want you to be thinking, what is the doctrine of Christ? What is it specifically? Do we know what the doctrine of Christ is? If you think about making a list of doctrines, uh, which ones would be the doctrines of Christ or the doctrine of Christ? All right. Um, this particular chapter here makes a transition point. Nephi is going to change subjects from the workings of the Lord in the future to the practicalities of living the gospel. Um, chapters 31 to 33 represent the conclusion of Nephi's great record. True to form, Nephi will speak in great plainness so that there can be no question as to what one must do to obtain eternal life. So let's look at the subject matter of the next three chapters as a handbook or recipe for obtaining eternal, eternal life. Nephi discusses repentance, baptism, the gift of the Holy Ghost, obedience, enduring to the end, following Christ, faith, hope, and charity, feasting on the words of Christ, following the Spirit, and prayer. What a brilliant collection of principles, a more complete blueprint for salvation could hardly be written. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland said, In a marvelous final testimony to his people, as well as to the unborn and unseen of the last dispensation yet to come, Nephi made an end of his prophesying, including prophesying about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and concluded his writing and his lifetime of teaching with a few words concerning the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of Christ, as taught by Nephi in his grand summational discourse, focuses on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism by immersion, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. It does not, in this declaration, attempt to cover the entire plan of salvation. All the virtues of a Christian life are the rewards that wait, await us in differing degrees of heavenly glory. It does not, in this declaration, deal with the offices of the priesthood, the ordinances of the temple, or many other true doctrines. All these are important. But as used in the Book of Mormon, the doctrine of Christ is simple and direct. It focuses on the first principles of the gospel exclusively, including an expression of encouragement to endure, to persist, to press on. Indeed, it is, the, it is in the clarity and simplicity of the doctrine of Christ that its impact is found. Nephi knew it would be so. He wrote, I shall speak unto you plainly according to the plainness of my prophesying. I think I just gave away the answer to my question, didn't I? What the doctrine of Christ is. Let's keep going. So about 55 years have passed away since they left Jerusalem. As I mentioned before, Nephi is probably about 70 or so. 70 years old, maybe a little bit older, don't know. Okay, verse 1. And now I, Nephi, make an end of my prophesying unto you, my beloved brethren, and I cannot write but a few things, which I know must surely come to pass, neither can I write but a few of the words of my brother Jacob. Now remember that he's writing on the small plates, and he's starting to run out of room already, it sounds like. The large plates may have more, but uh, he's, he's confining the small plates to... Uh, to the, the spiritual part, and so he's running out of room, I think. Verse 2, Wherefore the things which I have written sufficeth me, save it be a few words which I must speak concerning the doctrine of Christ, wherefore I shall speak unto you plainly, according to the plainness of my prophesying. 
Elder Packer said, True doctrine understood changes attitudes and behavior. The study of the doctrines of the gospel will improve behavior quicker than a study of behavior will improve behavior. Preoccupation with unworthy behavior can lead to unworthy behavior. That is why we stress so forcefully the study of the doctrines of the gospel. If we're studying the scriptures, we won't have time to study sin. Verse 3, For my soul delighteth in plainness, for after this manner doth the Lord God work among the children of men. Hugh Nibley said, If the Book of Mormon said only what we wanted it to say, we wouldn't need it. But we do need it. It is written according to the plainness of the Word of God. In plainness, even as plain as word can be, it needs no handbook, not even this one, to explain its meaning. I glory in plainness, said Nephi, for my soul delighteth in plainness, for after this manner doth the Lord God work. For he speaketh unto men according to their language, unto their understanding. So that, so that leaves us pretty much without excuse. Continuing verse 3. For the Lord God giveth light unto the understanding, for he speaketh unto men according to their language and their understanding. I've heard it said that if angels come to visit you, they're going to speak in the language that you understand, at the level that you understand it. Verse 4, Wherefore I would that ye should remember that I have spoken unto you concerning that prophet, meaning John the Baptist, which the Lord showed unto me, Nephi saw a vision of the mortal ministry of Christ that should baptize the Lamb of God, which should take away the sins of the world. And now if the Lamb of God, he being holy, should have need to be baptized by water to fulfill all righteousness, oh then, how much more need have we, being unholy, to be baptized, yea, even by water? Uh, Nephi, to dramatize the importance of baptism, tells us that the Savior had to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. The doctrine is both little understood and marvelously important. In the high spiritual sense, there is no righteousness without willing submission to all the ordinances of salvation. No more perfect example could be found than Christ himself. Christ, who was sinless, had to be baptized in order to be considered righteous. To be righteous, as the word is used in its highest spiritual sense, means far more than being sinless, pure or, or merely good. Righteousness is not simply the absence of evil or impropriety. It is the active seeking of the mind and will of the Father and compliance with that with that will once it was once it has been obtained. Neither John nor Jesus could have been considered righteous had the baptism not taken place. In the general sense, righteousness was understood to embrace the filling of obligations or the observance of legal requirements. In a more strictly religious sense, it was understood to mean conforming to the will of the Father. And that's uh, from McConkie and Millet. Keeping in mind that if Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, then he would have also performed all other saving ordinances necessary for exaltation, including marriage. Elder McConkie said, Nephi explains that Christ did fulfill all righteousness in being baptized and that he humbled himself before the Father. He covenanted to be obedient and keep his Father's commandments. He had to be baptized to gain admission to the celestial kingdom. And he set an example for all men to follow. Our Lord's baptism showeth unto the children of men the straightness of the path and the narrowness of the gate by which they should enter, he having set the example before him. There isn't an ordinance that Jesus would not have performed, uh, being the example to the rest of us. Joseph Smith taught that if a man gets a fullness of the priesthood of God, he has to get it in the same way that Jesus Christ obtained it, and that was by keeping all the commandments and obeying all the ordinances of the house of the Lord. Did you notice that? That Jesus even uh, kept all the ordinances of the house of the Lord, meaning that he had been sealed to a spouse. Christ is our example in all things. He ceases to be that if we excuse him from compliance with the ordinances of salvation or the obligation to keep the commandments. It would hardly be consistent to announce one system of salvation for Christ and another for the rest of mankind, and then to stoutly maintain that Christ's actions are the example to be followed. 
Christ was not baptized for remission of sins, for he neither had committed sin nor would do so. He required neither redemption nor deliverance. Our Savior was baptized because baptism is required for entrance into the kingdom of God. Verse 6, And now I would ask of you, my beloved brethren, wherein the Lamb of God did fulfill all righteousness, it in being baptized by water. Know ye not that he was holy? But notwithstanding he being holy, he showeth unto the children of men that according to the flesh he humbleth himself before the Father and witnesseth unto the Father that he would be obedient unto him in keeping the commandments, keeping his commandments. Wherefore, after he was baptized with water, the Holy Ghost descended upon him in the form of a dove. Now the past tense is used regarding Jesus' baptism. Remember that this is before it happened. In Hebrew text is the prophetic perfect this was a natural way for Hebrews to speak. Isaiah speaks, uh, uses this prophetic perp, uh, perfect in speaking of the destruction of Israel as if it had already happened. When prophets speak in the future tense, they are usually conditional prophecies. Joseph Smith taught that the Holy Ghost descended in the sign of the dove. The sign of the dove was instituted before the creation of the world, a witness for the Holy Ghost, and the devil cannot come in the sign of a dove. The Holy Ghost is a personage and is in the form of a personage. It does not confine itself to the form of the dove, but in sign of the dove. The Holy Ghost cannot be transformed into a dove, but the sign of a dove was given to John to signify the truth of the deed, as the dove is an emblem or token of truth and innocence. So what did John see? He actually saw the Holy Ghost descend upon Jesus. He also saw the dove come down and land upon Jesus. And the dove was the sign that this was the Holy Ghost descending upon Jesus. And it descended upon him like a dove descends in a gentle way. So that's what is meant by the, the dove here. Verse 9, And again it showeth unto the children of men the straightness of the path and the narrowness of the gate by which they should enter, he having set the example before them. And he said unto the children of men, Follow thou me. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, can we follow Jesus, save we shall be willing to keep the commandments of the Father? And the Father said, Repent ye, repent ye, and be baptized in the name of my beloved Son. Baptism is a sign to God, to angels, and to heaven, that we do the will of God, and there is no other way beneath the heavens, whereby God hath ordained for man to come to him to be saved, and enter into the kingdom of God, except faith in Jesus Christ, repentance and baptism for the remission of sins, and any other course is in vain. Then you have the promise of the gift of the Holy Ghost. So now stop and think about, you know, this is what's going on in this planet. Does that mean that the doctrine of Christ is operative in every other planet? If Jesus is the Christ for all those other planets, then yes, they are also complying with the laws of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost, just like we are. The plan of salvation that we have is the same plan that's being used for every other planet that God created. Baptism serves four purposes. It is for the remission of sins. It admits the repentant person to membership in the church and kingdom of God on earth. It is the gate to the celestial kingdom of heaven. That is, it starts a person out on the straight and narrow path which leads to eternal life, and it is the means whereby the door to personal sanctification is opened, and that's from Busar Makaki. Verse 12, And also the voice of the Son came unto me. Notice that Nephi is being um, is having this experience here, uh, and he's, he's hearing the voice of God speak to him, or the voice of Jesus Christ. Uh, let me read you this from uh, Doctrinal Commentary of the Book of Mormon. 
2 Nephi 31 is the most distinctive scriptural text. In verse 11, Nephi records the words of the Father to him. So back in verse 11, he says the Father spoke to him. In verse 12, the voice of the Son comes to him. The pattern repeats itself in reverse order in verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, we have a record of that spoken by the voice of the Son. Verse 15, the voice of the Father. Apparently, Nephi finds himself in conversation with both members of the Godhead. If such is the case, this is a singular occasion, inasmuch as revelation since the fall has normally come by and through Jehovah, who is Jesus Christ. The prophet Enoch seems to have had an experience similar to Nephi in Moses 7, 50, 53, and 59. Those instances wherein Elohim has appeared or spoken have been for the purpose of introducing Jesus Christ as his son. In compliance with the principle of divine investiture of authority, there are also numerous instances wherein the Son has spoken for and in behalf of the Father. However, for those who have had the second comforter, Joseph Smith explained that Christ will introduce us to the Father, so maybe this is actually a record of Nephi being instructed by the Father. Saying, He that is baptized in my name, to him will the Father give the Holy Ghost like unto me. An intelligent being in the image of God possesses every organ, attribute, sense, and sympathy, affection that is possessed by God himself. But these are possessed by man in the rudimental state, in a subordinate sense of the word. Or in other words, these attributes are in embryo and are to be gradually developed. They resemble a bud, a germ, which gradually develops into bloom and then by progress produces the mature fruit after its own kind. The gift of the Holy Ghost adapts itself to all these organs or attributes. It quickens all the intellectual faculties, increases, enlarges, expands, and purifies all the natural passions and affections and adapts them by the gift of wisdom to their lawful use. It inspires, develops, cultivates, and matures all the fine-toned sympathies, joys, tastes, kindred feelings, and affection of our nature. It inspires virtue, kindness, goodness, tenderness, gentleness, and charity. It develops beauty of person, form, and features. It tends to health, vigor, animation, and social feeling. It invigorates all the faculties of the physical and intellectual man. It strengthens and gives tone to the nerves. In short, it is, as it were, marrow to the bone, joy to the heart, light to the eyes, music to the ears, and life to the whole being. That was from Parley P. Pratt. Wherefore, follow me and do the things which ye have seen me do. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, I know that if ye shall follow the Son with full purpose of heart, acting no hypocrisy and no deception before God, but with, your, with, but with real intent, repenting of your sins, witnessing unto the Father that ye are willing to take upon you the name of Christ by baptism, yea, by following your Lord and your Savior down into the water, according to his word, behold, then shall ye receive the Holy Ghost. Yea, then cometh the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost, and then can ye speak with the tongue of angels." and shout praises unto the Holy One of Israel. Elder McConkie said, The baptism of the Spirit is called the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. By the power of the Holy Ghost, who is the sanctifier, dross, iniquity, carnality, sensuality, and every evil thing is burned out of the repentant soul as if by fire. The cleansed person becomes literally a new creature of the Holy Ghost. He is born again. The baptism of fire is not something in addition to the receipt of the Holy Ghost. Rather, it is the actual enjoyment of the gift which is offered by the laying on of hands at the time of baptism. Remission of sins, the Lord says, comes by baptism and by fire, yea, even the Holy Ghost. 
Joseph Smith said, you might as well baptize a bag of sand as a man, if not done in view of the remission of sins and getting of the Holy Ghost. Baptism by water is but half a baptism and is good for nothing without the other half. That is the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Verse 14, but behold, my beloved brethren, thus came the voice of the son. And now the son is again talking back to, to, to Nephi, saying, after ye have repented of your sins and witnessed unto the father that ye are willing to keep my commandments, by the baptism of water, and have received the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost, and can speak with a new tongue, yea, even with the tongue of angels, and after this should deny me, it would have been better for you that you had not been that you had not known me. The worst enemies of the church are among those who were who were once members of it. Such leave the church, but find it impossible to leave it alone. Thereafter, their lives are devoted to opposition to those truths that once afforded them peace and joy. Obviously, it would have been better for them to have never known the truth than to become enemies to it. Doctrinal Commentary of the Book of Mormon. Verse 15, And I heard a voice from the Father, saying, Yea, the words of my beloved are true and faithful. He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. Elder Maxwell said, Our emphasis, therefore, should be on doing and becoming, not just on surviving, on serving others, not just serving time. Thus, this quality of graceful endurance includes but is more than hanging on for one moment more. Passing beyond breaking points without breaking takes the form of endurance. Hence, we are not merely to exist to the end, but are to persist in coping with what is occurring in the holy present. If we will follow the example of the Son of the living God, great things await us. Nevertheless, he that endureth in faith and doeth my will, the same shall overcome and shall receive an inheritance upon the earth when the day of transfiguration shall come. And all they who suffer persecution for my name and endure in faith, though they are called to lay down their lives for my sake, yet shall they partake of all this glory. Even yesterday's spiritual experience, however, does not guarantee us against tomorrow's relapse. Persistence thus matters greatly. More than a few, for instance, have had a supernal spiritual experience only to fall away later, or more, more often merely to pull, us, pull off to the side of the road, though intending only a brief rest stop. Hence, the emphasis on enduring well to the end is wise, simply because we are at risk till the end, including in the enduring process in meeting the test of being con constantly improved. Remodeling is costly and painful, but how can we realistically expect the arduous process of putting off the old man and putting on the new man to be otherwise? Um, M. Russell Ballard said, Today, tomorrow, next week is the time for our preparation. In fact, it's a lifelong effort. It does not stop until we are safely dead, with our testimony still burning very brightly. We ought to reverence life and cherish every minute of it. It should be so precious to us <clears throat> that, we are, that we feel compelled to commit ourselves to making each day the very best day that we can, preparing ourselves someday to meet our Heavenly Father. Verse 16, And now, my beloved brethren, I know by this that unless a man shall endure to the end in following the example of the Son of the living God, he cannot be saved. Wherefore, do the things which I have told you. I have seen that your Lord and your Redeemer should do. For for this cause have they been shown unto me, that ye might know the gate by which ye should enter. For the gate by which ye should enter is repentance and baptism by water, and then cometh the remission of your sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost. The gate is both repentance and baptism. The gift of the Holy Ghost brings about a remission of sins. Baptism is the gate to put us to put the path that leads to to put us on the path to leads to exaltation. Elder McConkie said Sins are remitted not in the waters of baptism, as we say in speaking figures 
figuratively, but when we receive the Holy Ghost, it is the Holy Spirit of God that erases carnality and brings us into a state of righteousness. We become clean when we actually receive the fellowship and companionship of the Holy Ghost. It is then that sin and dross and evil are burned out of our souls as though by fire. The baptism of the Holy Ghost is the baptism of fire. Verse 18, And then are ye in this straight and narrow path which leads to, life, to eternal life. Yea, ye have entered in by the gate. Ye have done according to the commandments of the Father and the Son, and ye have received the, the Holy Ghost, which witnesses of the Father and the Son unto the fulfilling of the promise which he hath made, that if, he, ye, that if ye entered in by the way ye should receive. And now, my beloved brethren, after ye have gotten into this straight and narrow path, I would ask if all is done. Behold, I say unto you, Nay, for ye have not come thus far, save it were by the word of Christ, with unshaken faith in him, relying wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. It is essential for any person to have an actual knowledge that the course of life which he is pursuing is according to the will of God to enable him to have that confidence in God without which no person can obtain eternal life. It was this that enabled the ancient saints to endure all their afflictions and persecutions and to take joyfully the spoiling of their goods, knowing, not believing merely, that they, were, that they had a more enduring substance. Having the assurance that they were pursuing a course which was agreeable to the will of God, they were enabled to take not only the spoiling of their goods and the wasting of their substance joyfully, but also to suffer death in its most horrid forms, knowing, not merely believing, that when this earthly house of this tabernacle was dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Such was and always will be the situation of the saints of God, unless they have an actual knowledge that the course they are pursuing is according to the will of God, they will grow weary in their minds and faint for a man to lay down his all, his character and reputation, his honor and applause, his good name among men, his houses, his lands, his brothers and sisters, his wife and children, and even his own life also, counting all these things but filth and dross for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, requires more than mere belief or supposition that he is doing the will of God. It requires actual knowledge, realizing that when their sufferings are ended, he will enter into eternal rest and be partaker of the glory of God. That was Joseph Smith from the Lectures on Faith. Verse 20, Wherefore, ye must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ. One is steadfast in Christ when he pursues an undeviating course of obedience and righteousness, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men. Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ, and endure to the end of your mortal life, behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. Sometimes someone will say, well, I have been baptized in the church, I'm a member of the church, I'm a member of the church, and, and I'll just go along and live an ordinary sort of life. I won't commit any great crimes, I'll live a reasonably good Christian life, and eventually I will gain the kingdom of God. I don't understand it that way. I think that baptism is a gate, it is a gate which puts us on a path, and the name of the path is the straight and narrow path. The straight and narrow path leads upward from the gate of baptism to the celestial kingdom of heaven. After a person has entered the gate of baptism, he has to press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, as Nephi expresses it, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men. And if he endures to the end, then he gains the promised reward. And that was Bruce R. McConkie. Elder Maxwell said, We need to feast upon the words of Christ in the scriptures, and as these words come to us from living prophets, just nibbling occasionally will not do. Feasting means partaking with, with relish and delight and savoring, not gorging episodically in heedless hunger, but partaking gratefully, dining with delight at a sumptuous spread, carefully and lo lovingly prepared by prophet chefs over the centuries. These words, plus the gift of the Holy Ghost, will tell us all things we should do. The scriptures, ancient and continuing, are the key of knowledge. 
Also, since feasting on the word of God has a more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than anything else, and the more of the word of God we have and act upon, the more we will press forward. Much spiritual energy is necessary for the marathon of discipleship. Verse 21, And now behold, my beloved brethren, this is the way, and there is none other way, nor name given under heaven, whereby man can be saved in the kingdom of God. And more, and now behold, this is the, the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of Christ is the, plain, is the plan and system whereby the children of God fulfill all righteousness through taking upon themselves the name of Christ in baptism, receiving and obeying the principles and ordinances of the gospel, and then enduring to the end in faith. And the only and true doctrine of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, which is one God without end. Amen. So the, we know that the doctrine of Christ then is uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, and the gift and the gift of the Holy Ghost by laying on of hands by those who have authority and enduring to the end. Very simple. These are the things that are going to save us. I bear testimony of the truth of these things and of the doctrine of Christ in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I hope you like this. Subscribe and tell your friends.